Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Real quick before we get started with this podcast, which is going to blow your mind, I got this book coming out. In the book, I feature, among other people, the thoughts and ideas of a Czech economist named Tomas Sedlacek, one of the people that has been one of the greatest influences on my thinking, just really clarified many, many, many years of reading economics and finance and trying to understand the world. Here's this guy who really helped me put a lot of things together. And I am thrilled, beyond thrilled, to share my ideas in the book, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity, and Tomas Sedlacek's ideas in this podcast here, his book, The Economics of Good and Evil. Go get both of them. Go get them right now. Tomas's book will get sent to you right away. Mine will come a little bit later after October 1st when it comes out, and you can enjoy them both. And at the end of this year, say, hey, <laughs> this was time well, well spent. Take care, everybody. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Every year I publish a list of my favorite books, the books I read during the last 12 months that were the most influential on me, had the, the largest impact on me. And without a doubt, the top of that list, even looking at the years that have gone by, is a book called The Economics of Good and Evil, The Quest for Economic Meaning from Gilgamesh to Wall Street from a man named Tomas Sedlacek. The book goes back into the history of mankind, our philosophy, where economics comes from, and gives us a real lesson for how to look at our places today. I am more than thrilled to have the author of this book speaking to us today from uh, the Czech Republic. Tomas Sedlacek, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's astounding to actually be speaking with you. I, I want to start the conversation and help people understand your book by asking you a question about this God known as growth. Uh, I look at you know the way we worship across societies and cultures and civilizations. Today, I think if you just drop someone in and had them listen to us and read us, they would ask who is this God you have and why does he need growth? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very uh, even cruel deity, you know. It, it's a little bit like, the, like Morpheus expresses in, uh, in Matrix. It's like a prison that wakes you up in the morning and makes you do things that you don't want to do. Uh, exactly because I wouldn't even say that we, leave, that we live under capitalism. I think a better description would be growth capitalism. Growth has become the major value, or if, if not the only very often, or the strongest value. So for me, capitalism is basically about values. So some of those I respect, the others I, I don't. But capitalism basically means that you, you, the freedom of um, endeavor and the freedom of, of ownership and the respect for law and democracy, in our case, are very important values. While, while growth capitalism is a different system, I, I think much more dominant today, 
And growth capitalism has growth as its main value. In other words, it's also ready to sacrifice democracy. So not very much now, but a couple of years back, I've, I've been touring the world and, and a lot of business people were asking me, look at China. I mean, they have capitalism without democracy and that system seems to be growing stronger than our you know, meek, uh, liberal, uh, democratic system. Shouldn't we sell a little bit of democracy, you know, all the green um, requirements and all the details and all the all the lengthiness of the debate and, you know, why do we have so many chambers of parliament, etc., etc.? Why don't we do it a little bit with a totalitarian grip? It would provide better growth. And so that this sort of a question only can come from a person who values economic growth more than democracy and more than uh, the other values of capitalism. So this is why the God of the markets needs to grow. And this, this, this actually, this desire, or even maybe a hunger is not even a desire. It's a sort of a, from something that was supposed to be a result of a well-functioning system here. I mean, growth, growth was supposed to be a sign of a good functioning system. One of the signs we made growth a conditio sine qua non of everything of everything else. So, for example, I don't know, take our pension system. Pension system assumes that our, our economy will grow in the long term very steadily. It's an assumption that we, I don't know where we took it from. It's not written in the skies. It's not written in the Bible. It's not written in any economic theory that the, um, the economy will grow on and on and on and on without any ups and downs. So instead of taking that as a thank you result, I mean, if all goes well, the field grows and, and growth of the field enlargens. But if it doesn't grow, we might be quite happy with our, I don't know, 12 sheep and a couple of hectares of, of field. So, so that to me is, is the problem. Instead of basing, for example, the pension system under the assumption that the economy will go steady, i.e. we will have 0% growth let's say, in 20 years, and then be pleasantly surprised that in some years, in fact, the economy does grow and, you know, make that growth beneficial to the system. We took it as an assumption. We based our pension system, for example, and our social system and other systems as well, but pension system is a good example. We sort of based that under the assumption that, that growth will happen. So uh, the system would fall down. It would break down without growth. That's growth capitalism. Proper capitalism in the original term of the world can, of course, stand many years of non-growth. I mean, it's not optimal. Nobody wants to be sort of stagnating for a long time. But we have to make our system resilient and able to withstand even long periods of, of no growth. Maybe one final way how to put it is, um, is an image of um, a sailing, sailing yacht. It's a good yacht if it can harvest wind. But it's a bad yacht if it assumes that favorable winds will be blowing all the time. If I build my boat or a yacht under the assumption that every single day it's going to be good weather and fair wind for sailing, that actually is not a good yacht. A good yacht must be able to take no wind. It must be able to take standstill, of course, and it must also be able to take stronger winds than, than optimal. Whereas we have built our economic system under the assumption that favorable winds will blow. You had an incredibly insightful set of, of ideas, of notions back during the European crisis after 2008. I'd like to ask you to chat a little bit about the difference between 
the Greek problem and the Irish problem. They seem to be two sides of a similar coin, yet we, we approach them and we kind of freak out over one and the other one, we just kind of, you know, yeah, that's, that's the cost of doing business. And now we may also add to it the third dimension, and that's Britain, Brexit, leaving the European Union. So maybe for younger li- readers or listeners who might not re- might be fortunate enough not to really have this in their vivid memory, it wasn't only Greece that was bankrupting, it was also Ireland. And um, it's interesting to compare the two because Greece, it was a depression-led crisis. Things slowed down. And the economy went bust because it spent too much time in uh, depression, let's say, slightly simplified. Now, the case of Ireland is exactly opposite. Ireland went into a full throttle crisis. It was a um, full, what I call a full throttle bankruptcy. It was uh, sunny side up. Everything looked good. It was exactly because the economy was too strong that that the crisis happened. In other words... If you look at classic bipolar disorder, you have two extremes. And one of my points, of course, is that the economy isn't really depressed. It's a misdiagnosis. It's a wrong reading of the, of the, of the illness or of, of the state, so to speak. The economy isn't really depressed. The economy is manic depressed. And you can't really treat somebody who's manic depressed the same way you treat a person who's depressed. And uh, as an example, I give the example of Greece, which would be a collapse that happened due to depression. People didn't have enough stamina. People didn't have enough um, uh, faith in the future of of Greece. There wasn't really much capital. Capital got exhausted and they needed excessive amounts of debt to keep the growth capitalism functioning. And that's why it's collapsed. Now, in Ireland, the example was exactly the opposite. There, if my colleagues in Ireland worked half of their time, the problem probably wouldn't even exist. It was too sanguine. People believed in the Irish economy and the housing, especially the housing market, too much. They believed textbooks too much. They followed the law too much. They followed the economic logic, which showed to be flawed, too much. Unlike in Greece, which did the opposite. Now, the, now, of course, all the focus has been on Greece. Very little focus has been on Ireland, which I think is a pity because the Irish crisis really resembles much more the American crisis. And we also have to remind ourselves that what you rightly call the European crisis didn't start in Europe, but it started in the very heart of the United States of America. And in the United States of America was also a manic-led collapse. It was a full-throttle bankruptcy for the whole economy. If you check the numbers... For the I mean, United States macroeconomy, night before the collapse, everything was fine. Growth has been there for um, a record amount of years. If you remember, Alan Greenspan was credited back in the day of inventing the end of boom and bust economy. We, we thought we finally figured out the key. Competitiveness was high. Uh, unemployment was low. There really wasn't a cloud, so to speak, in the statistics of the United States of America. And that was the day when the backbone, meaning here the financial market, literally broke down and it wouldn't be able to survive without very significant government help. So it's a full throttle bankruptcy that I would argue is more dangerous than the depression-led bankruptcies. Also, interestingly enough, from economic theory, we are well-versed and, well, 
<laughs> relatively well versed. We think we know what to do during the depression times. Um, basically, the advice has been same like ever, and do bloodletting. You know, do it monetarily, uh, decrease interest rates, and spend uh, a ridiculous amount of money at the level of the government. When the economy doesn't want to consume, the government should. This is the wisdom of the age consume in its stead so we do know how to sort of get back from depressions well do know is a little bit of a strong word but we do have a sort of an idea what we don't know is how to avoid these manic led depressions we really don't know how to create budget surpluses and we still don't know in the year 2019 uh, the ma majority of advanced economies are actually not creating budget surpluses even though the economy is growing so um that's a big uh, empty, <laughs> I would say, uh, niche market without actually being, being very niche of the economic theory that our theory is not able to sort of work with our strong sides. It can only work with our weak sides. And I'm much more afraid of our strengths uh, than our weaknesses, I, I must say. You have a line you've spoken before that I've used a number of times because it so perfectly describes the way we go about building our cities, this derivation of the larger economy, please give us back our unsustainability. I listened to the politicians today running for president, and they're all describing how we can become manic once again. I would like to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, the story of Joseph, because it's, it's one that I've read many, many times, but like a number of these stories now, having read your book, I'm looking at them again through different eyes. How does the story of Joseph uh, in the Old Testament give us a sense of uh, how historically economists would have approached something like this? Oh, yeah, thank you. That's one of my favorite sort of uh, examples of fiscal policy. In fact, this is the oldest, um, oldest memory that mankind has uh, about a business cycle, a clear business cycle, seven good years and seven bad years. It happened in a dream first. So... You can also you can play with the with the story many many different ways because back in the day, of course you know that Pharaoh had a dream and he didn't know what to make of it, so he calls Joseph and Joseph says, "Well, congratulations, Pharaoh! You just had uh, the first macroeconomic prediction in the history of mankind, and it was a prediction that reached 14 years um, ahead of time, which is something we are not able to do." Till today, we can do our predictions maybe one or two years in advance. That's point number one. Point number two is that the future was revealed to, uh, to the ancients in, in the biblical story in dream. Pharaoh had a dream about something what will happen in the future. Today, future is revealed to us through science through models that we economists create and we try to mimic reality or not really mimic the reality, but mimic the important part of the reality in order to understand what's happening and what will happen in the future. Now, you cannot find seemingly a bigger difference between the scientific theory and a dream because dreams are fuzzy, theories are exact, dreams are subjective, theory must be objective, dreams are... So they use pictures and, and, and images um, uh, that are fuzzy, while science uses exact numbers that are um, exactly not fuzzy. So one would expect that um, 
these two approaches would lead to different results. But but uh, if you actually look, think about it a little bit deeper, uh, an economic theory is also dreamlike. It, there is no such thing as an economic theory. It doesn't have existence. It's not on the uh, periodic table. It's it it's doesn't exist. It's just a game that we sort of play like football doesn't really exist as such. You can't meet football. You can meet people playing football. You can meet people playing by the rules, but football does not have necessarily entity. So our economic uh, and scientific models are also invented very often in a dream. We are actually describing a dreamlike situation because Rene Descartes, the founder of modern science, actually the way he invented the modern method was actually in a dream. He was doubting everything and, and he started um, rejecting everything he sees or f- smells or tastes like one rejects it in a dream. That's another uh, sort of more technical observation. But what's interesting is the behavior or the wisdom of the ancients that um, this story is some 3,000 years old. These people didn't have any um, spreadsheets. They didn't have universities to start with, and let alone did they have economics or econometrics. They didn't have any public polls. Nobody was interested in the opinion of the masses. Much more primitive, let's say, approach than we have. And yet they've managed to come out of this test or this crisis better than we have with all our Excel sheets. First of all, we didn't predict it at all at all. And secondly, we were not ready in theory what to do with it. Uh, Because lesson number one from this story is that the economy goes in cycles. It has always done that and it will always keep doing that. There is no silver bullet for that. Everything in (laughs) almost everything in, in nature goes in cycles, years, periods, um, stars, even uh, the spin-off on the quantum level, it's really um, a sort of a vibrating cycle. So this is a very important lesson that we still sort of tend to forget. We forgot it in 2006 and 2007 when we thought we invented the end of boom and bust. So lesson number one, it's not the question whether crises will come. It's just a question of when it will come. We don't know when, but what we should do is we should start with the um, economic policy during the good years. This is what Pharaoh, you know, the first image he saw was seven fat years, seven years of growth, growth of grain back in the day. Today, we don't use grain. We just say the word growth. But it's funny that it's still the same word, actually, or the the same sort of entity. So first seven years were fat years. And during these fat years, Pharaoh actually did a fiscal policy of of surpluses. He saved 20 percent of all the grain that grew and he saved it for the bad years and so during the seven bad years he could uh, then open the gates of the storehouses and let the let the grain out so that people wouldn't die of hunger that's also something we don't do we have very high levels of debt and this is unfortunately true both for europe and for united states of america and for japan Our uh, advanced economies are more indebted than the poor economies. So at the end of the day, it's the poor who are actually lending money to the rich, which is also some sort of an irony if you look at it. The key difference is that this Egyptian culture, according to this story, they managed to go through or duck the crises without a single penny of debt, which is something completely outside of even our outside of our imagination. Exactly because Pharaoh had budget surpluses, he could go through 
crises unharmed without actually going to anybody with debt, uh, with sorry, with the request of, of borrowing, borrowing their money. That's something that we can't even imagine. Uh, but it actually it's not so hard to imagine. Just imagine that um, the United States of America, let's say in the year 2007, before the crisis started, if it had zero percent of debt to GDP ratio, just for a moment, let's imagine that that situation would be the case. What would happen during the crisis? Well, your debt level would go from zero to, let's say, 20 percent of debt to GDP, which is hardly fatal, nor is it dangerous. 20 percent of debt is, is a manageable amount of debt. So the crisis has only been so bad because we've entered it with such huge amount of debt, which was unnecessary. It wasn't the debt that we created during the wartime. It wasn't the debt that we had to incur because our children were dying on famine or, uh, or we were trying to save a country that was uh, going through drop. No, we've created this excessive amount of debt during, during the excessively good years. And let me just bring this parable to a close. What Joseph describes in Genesis 42, which is easy to remember because everything important in this world has somehow the number 42 incorporated in it. <laughs> so Genesis 42 is actually the story of Pharaoh. Its, its energy is being sort of reversed exactly by science. I mean, if we haven't had, and I'm maybe being maybe too critical here, but if we didn't have such elaborated models of how much debt a country can take and you know this is okay and you know all the banks are actually working on on we have this um, basic scheme a model which tells us you know what's the risk of lending more money to that creditor and if that one creditor goes bust we should be able to continue our business that's what banking is all about you take risks i mean some most people should return their money but of course the name of the game is that sometimes you lose money and you have to have your model based so that it can take such losses and exactly because i think or my argument which i'm happy to take with somebody who is of opposite opinion because i think my judgment is really quite harsh is actually saying that we've blinded ourselves with all the Excel sheets and with all the beliefs and markets growing and growing and growing and with all the uh, manic-induced uh, optimism that the markets are so very happy to catch on that we forgot that uh, good periods will be followed by bad periods. And we've adopted a policy that I called bastard Keynesianism, uh, which basically means that you don't only go into debt during the bad years, which is sort of fine, according to Keynes, but we are going into debt in good years. So um, that's completely not allowed. And that's also, I think you mentioned this in, in the blog that you wrote, that today Keynes would be a left winger uh, because uh, even people such as Krugman are uh, never saying when the debts will be paid back. And the point about paying the debts is that you have to pay the debts even if your GDP grows. You still have to pay back your fiscal debt. It's not like when the growth actually happens that the debt's going to go away. It's going to be easier to pay the debt, but you still have to pay the debt. So the debate that has been going on for the past years, if I may simplify it, has been like this. Let's go into debt in order to jumpstart the economy. And the third implication of that, in order to pay back our debts. Like this is, I think, uh, what Krugman and, and others are saying. Well, my linguistic argument here is let's just take out the middle part away 
the part with jump-starting the economy, which clearly didn't happen. We've been jump-starting the economy with low interest rates for 10 years, and it didn't, you know, one thing it didn't do was jump-start. But anyway, that's just a footnote. So if you take that three-level implication and you take the middle part away, so it originally goes, let's go into debt so that we can jump-start the economy so that we can pay our debts better, take out the middle part, and what you get is, let's go into debt so that we can pay our debts better, which, you know, to an every school child <laughs> right. looks extremely suspicious and definitely it should look very suspicious to any banker. Let me ask you a little bit about the values at play here, because a lot of times we're told during the bad years that, you know, we, we have this moral imperative to get the economy growing again. Because people are being hurt by the depression. People are being hurt by slow growth. People are being hurt by a contracted economy. I get that. I look around and I see people being hurt by it. I see people struggling. But then we're told during the good years that in a sense, we're leaving people behind. You know, We could grow more. Uh, we could have more prosperity. We could have more people being better off in many ways. It's occurred to me, or at least I've been one to ask the question, if this system doesn't work on the way down for people, and I see that, but it also doesn't seem to be working on the way up for people, what are the values that we're actually projecting here? What are we trying to accomplish? And I'm, I'm a little bit poo-pooed by the economists who say, you know, well, come on, Chuck, it's about, you know, growth will solve these problems and growth has made us better off. And I, I find that hard to argue with. What's getting lost in the translation here? Why, if we want an economy or we want a society where people prosper, is there something intuitively wrong with putting economics at the center of it? That's, that's a very good question, and there are a couple of ways how, to, how I look at it, and for better or for worse. First, first of all, I'd, I'd say it's a very uneconomic way how to treat the problem of the poor, economic growth. It's just a very, 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 very expensive uh, way how to treat the, let's say, the, the lower parts of the, of, of the economy. And let's say government prints money, okay, as a solution to, you can print it both fiscally by debt. So the government can no longer print money directly. This is thanks to independent monetary policy no longer possible. So we can't print money, but we can print debt as a government. So let's imagine the government prints, prints debt. And, and the, the sort of the poor people or, or, or the socially weak people are the last ones to be able to profit from that fresh money because it will go as everything in the economy. It's the, the worker actually gets a very, very little share of the actual price. So let's put it as, as a book author. Yeah, a book author gets, let's say, 10% of the book price. 90% of the book price goes to the other structures of the economy, which are usually owned by somebody who is not in need of a penny. They, they would be, um, you know, business people. And that's absolutely fine. I have nothing against it. The, the, you know, I'm, I'm not against growth. I'm just against um, expecting that every day or every year will be a growing year. Like, like I'm not against bad weather per se, but, uh, but I think it's stupid to live a life expecting that every day should be good weather. Uh, that's going to be a very, very sad life. I mean, you're going to be disappointed very, very often by these idiots who couldn't orchestrate good weather, even though they promised it. If you really care for the poor and for uh, enabling people, then you should enable them. That means uh, we have a saying in Czech, and maybe it's also in English, if, if you have an enemy who's hungry, 
give him fish. If you have a friend who's hungry, teach him how to fish. And that's how we should approach our social problem and people who are hungry and don't have a fish instead of giving them a fish, which is a short-term solution only in the case these people are li really literally dying. If one is dying, all secondary logic goes away. But in case this is not really a dying from hunger situation, we should try all the best that we can to teach our friends how to fish. So give people education, give them roads, things like this, but not through the uh, venturing of the standard uh, systems of the economy. The economy should be able to feed Healthcare, the economy should be able to feed um, education and such like that, not the other way around. We shouldn't be cutting down our education expenses to feed the economy. By God, I mean, all these people who've studied economy, did we ever, you know, study to be beggars in the society and, you know, deprive the culture and, and actually insist on social cuts so that banks and the system of the economy needs a sponsorship. This is, this is absurd. That's one thing. And the third thing is, I have an example. Uh, well, actually, no, two more examples how to look at it. I have a pen, and it's easy to tell whether that pen is working or not because we all know what a pen is supposed to do. A pen is supposed to write. That's it. Uh, if I expect my pen to fry eggs, I will be disappointed you know, because these idiots still didn't fix it. And every morning that I'll, you know, crack an egg open and it just slides over my pen and drops on the floor, I'll be disappointed. That's just being punished for being stupid. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that we, I mean, the economy is important, but it isn't here to solve everything. We cannot expect the markets or the economy to give us life and work balance. That's simply not up to the market. That is not its job. That's job of maybe you or your preacher or your uh, you know, family values. But you have to fight with that. That is your duty. And I think very many aspects in life are like that as well. We've become so dependent on the economy and on the growth, being able to solve everything. We sort of gave up our our ability to cope with, with other values. And we've just been sort of bribed by growth. And this growth has been almost for, I think we're similar ages. We're used to li living in prosperous times. And just because we've lived in prosperous times shouldn't make us believe that these prosperous times are here to stay. This question that you asked about the poor, the triple down effect is a very expensive and very slow effect how to make the economy sustainable in the long term. And also when the economy crashes, it would be the bottom of the society that suffers the most. So here too, I think a stable economy is better than a highly growing economy, just like a company. If I'm a manager of a company, I shouldn't be running for the highest profit in the nearest years. I should be also as a responsible employer you don't want to, you know, hire people for two years, give them extra pay and then let them go um, when the company goes bankrupt. That's not good management. You've ruined these people's lives. You gave them too much money for work. They maybe probably shouldn't deserve if you overpaid them. And then they will have a hard time looking for another job after you've uh, bankrupted. So just like that, a good economist should be an economist who values Values such as stability or the levels of unemployment, to me, much more important than the rates of growth. And they are somewhat related. But for example, Czechoslovakia, which split in 1993, very two very similar countries. We have a very similar language. We can understand each other. Maybe like you Americans can understand British. It's, it's a little different, but 
by and large the same. They've had double-digit growth in the 90s and in the 2000s, and they've also had double-digit unemployment. We've never had double-digit growth. We've always had a very low levels of growth, but we also had extremely low levels of unemployment. So um, if you ask me which economy to choose from those, I would choose the one with low unemployment. Um, and um, that's, for example, a higher value to me than growth. So, uh, yeah, flexible work, labor force, supply side um, economics, being open to technological changes and education. I believe that one thing that would really help uh, the people that need help and there will be people and we should help those that require our help. We are human beings, after all, is um, not this guaranteed income that you simply just get money for, for breathing air. But something that, for example, I studied in Denmark, which is conditioned income, you either study or you work. You either work for somebody else or you work on yourself. So in that case, we wouldn't have unemployed people. But let's say a taxi driver who loses his work due to, due to car automation at the age of 40, he's been a good driver. He's been learning languages. There's nothing wrong with him. Only the whole industry went automatic. Uh, that person shouldn't be unemployed in this new scheme, but that person should go sort of back to school, a lifelong university, and learn how to, I don't know, do sushi or um, learn calligraphics, basically attend a university, and then he or she would be eligible for some sort of um, minimum minimum income. So that's one thing that we could do if we really cared for the people who need our help. The thing I found about your book that was so intriguing to me was how deep it went into history and philosophy. I took economics in college, of course. I actually had a calculus-based economics class once, which was just calculations. I mean, it was charts and graphs and, and computation. Your book is unlike any other economics book I've, I've ever read in that regard. I'm struck by the notion that maybe it is the authentic economics. It's where economics started as philosophy. I don't necessarily want to ask you how this change was made, but I want to ask you what is lost if we start with economics as math or as physics, as opposed to starting with economics as a story of humanity and our values and what we're trying to, to do collectively together. Yeah, that's a very good question. There has been a huge debate about this. Even um, the teacher of John Stewart, um, John Maynard Keynes, um, Alfred Marshall, had this debate. And he said, if you can't explain, I mean, mathematics is supposed to be a scaffolding. You're supposed to, and I think I used this example somewhere in the back of the book, uh, mathematical modeling, just like in physics, should be a scaffolding. We don't see reality immediately. We don't see the laws of free fall when I look at a stone falling down. I have to observe many stones and do calculations. I don't see, and I have to make assumptions. Okay, so for example, the problem of a speed of the free fall becomes really easy if I imagine a world where there is no friction of air. Of course, that's a stupid thing to imagine because we all know that friction of air does exist, thank God. And there is no such thing as a frictionless world. But it appears to be a useful trick. So it's a scaffolding. So I'm building the building of physics using assumptions and models, which can be easily math mathematicized. Okay? So the scaffolding also resembles a little bit the shape of the future building from distance, but not near. I mean, it, it, the scaffolding is there to help us build the theory. And then, of course, the test of the theory is to take the scaffolding away and see if the building stands. 
And I'm afraid that we've, we have built a building out of scaffolding. There is very little, if you take the scaffolding away, very little insight. And this is what Marshall said. If you if, if burn the mathematics, this is the famous quote. If you can't explain it in plain English, burn the mathematics. Mathematics, sort of Marshall said, I only for the autistic guys and girls out there who need mathematical modeling in order to understand the reality. So that's that's one sort of little bit extreme. But it's also fun that it was this Marshall who started or who was there when the mathematization of economics um, started becoming the mainstream. There's a lot of ways how to look at it. The way I like to look at it is that economics has been fascinated since time immemorial by theoretical physics. Not by biology, not by biology, ironically, not by psychology, not by political philosophy, not by philosophy, not by, I don't know, you know, so many uh, much more similar areas to economics than theoretical physics. But because theoretical physics has been and still is so tremendously successful using the mathematical method, we thought perhaps we might follow suit. Now, what you lose, which was your question, what you lose with this approach is you lose exactly what physics lost, but physics lost this without any loss. They lost the human being. Uh, and when you take the methodology of physics, and physics is a field that studies dead objects that don't have any free will, nor do they have any psychology. Well, appears that they do a little bit as far as I understand quantum. <laughs> it seems to be quite psychological things going on, but I'm not a quantum physicist. But originally, physics wanted to study dead objects. They didn't want to do no philosophy. They just wanted to, you know, no nonsense, sort of cut the crap, let's go, you know, to the core, which in physics proved to be uh, numbers. But if you take this, the, the, the binaculars of physics and you look on, uh, look with the same method on a human society, uh, namely the part of the human society we call economics, you won't see human beings. And that's exactly what you see in textbooks today. It looks like physics textbook. If you actually hold your economics textbook from, I don't know, what, four or five feet so that you can't really read the text, but you see the, the paintings and the graphs and the pictures, the, the, the books of physics and, and economics look alike. And then this is why I am advocating humanomics. I'm, I'm not completely against um, mathematical economics. I think there is some use. And in certain areas, it's very helpful. But the problem is that this field has sort of crowded out the more human approaches, such as, for example, the Austrian School of Economics with some of the political conclusions. I don't agree, but that's fine. Or institutional economics, Hayek and, and, and Smith. And um, these were all people that didn't predominantly use math as, as a way of convincing their peers that their case is in fact uh, a fair one as well. That's why I wrote the book the way I wrote it. I wanted to put like a um, like an antidote to to this mathematical economics and show that there is actually extremely interesting field. Um, I would even say it's it's a dominant field of economics of which the mathematics is only a subset. I also suggested a couple of times somewhere that economics should be taught as a subset of sociology, exactly so that we sort of put our heads outside of the autistic, whatever we are stuck in, and realize that the economy is a subset of a society and that economics should be thought as a subgenre of sociology. I've got two technical questions for you and one kind of philosophical. I'm, I'm going to give you the technical ones because I think it ties into this. 
modern monetary theory is the new trendy economics idea here in the United States. And it seems to me what it does is it takes that math and actually brings it to a higher order, puts it at the very center of the conversation. Do you have any thoughts about modern monetary theory? I'm really, you know, largely unimpressed to be to be quite honest, because it's, you know, frankly, the the Krugmanite argument only not in fiscal policy, but in but in monetary policy. So a that is giving up uh, the governments can't do this. This is the whole idea of the independent monetary policy. Economic growth should not be of any concern to central bankers. The moment it becomes a concern to central bankers, we are on the same dooms machine like with fiscal policy. There's an interesting difference between fiscal policy and monetary policy, which I don't think too many people spot it. And the difference is that fiscal policy is directly democratic. You vote for your minister of finance, and that minister of finance is responsible to the electorate for treating the economy, for bringing uh, desired changes. And so that's, that's fiscal policy. Monetary policy, on the other hand, you don't vote for your governor. And just imagine the situation if you would. If in the United States, you would actually go to popular elections and vote your chairman of the Federal Reserve or chairperson, sorry. This is also, by the way, a valuable contribution from economics into the debate about the shape and form of today's democracy. Monetary policy is very democratic in Hungary, where they try to lessen the independence of the central bank and put the decision of, on interest rates also in the hands of the parliament, sort of making it, quote and unquote, more democratic, because technically speaking, it is more democratic. But in fact, it would be less democratic because you need independent monetary policy. You also, for example, another example is, is a judiciary. Judiciary is a conditio sine qua non of democracies, but it mustn't be democratic. You mustn't, uh, the judge mustn't listen to the voice of the people uh, when it comes to judging a specific person. I mean, that's exactly what he or she shouldn't do. They should listen to, to the voice of the law and to their conscience, but they're not responsible the judgment of judge is not subjected to democratic uh, critique, and it shouldn't be. And something like that works in monetary policy as well. So the basic assumption of, of this idea is that politicians somehow manage to twist the arm of the governors of the central banks to make them print money because of growth. And um, in, in Europe, our central bank only looks on um, on inflation, nothing else. They are only here to make sure that what has value keeps value. It means money shouldn't be devaluated. It shouldn't go through inflation. That's the only task that the central bank has in Europe. In the United States, it's a little more complicated because the Fed has two rabbits, so to speak, to hunt. One of them is price stability, and the other one is unemployment. So your central bank is slightly more political than the European central banks, but still, it mustn't be political to the point of, Okay, we want more GDP growth. Let's let's print money. So that's my basic basic technical thing to say. The other thing to say is inflation is only a threat when it's in large quantities, so to speak. So it looks like peace, peace, peace until there is a complete havoc. And once people get used to inflation, and the monetary theory would necessarily lead to such inflation sooner or later, 
it's very, very, very costly uh, to trim it back. Uh, you have your experience with uh, with this in in eighties in United States of America, and it, it was very painful to to work against inflation. So, what my point is here is general for fiscal policy and monetary policy alike. It looks really sweet when you are in your expansionary part of the cycle, meaning when you are printing money. And when you are going into deficits, that sounds so good. Uh, it's like free money coming out of nowhere. But the moment you have to reverse and you get into mania and you have to go back and you have to cool it down, then it's extremely painful. It's like when you're used to drugs. Okay. So I'd like to use the example of the, of the drug called speed. You know, that, that goes well for the economy. We've been eating these drugs and that drug was called fiscal, cheap fiscal policy and cheap monetary policy, cheap money and cheap debt. And uh, we now have a whole generation of new colleagues of ours, of new bankers, boys and girls, who've done their business for the past 10 years in the unnatural environment of zero interest rates. That's simply, <laughs> that's not a natural, that's like learning, teaching someone how to fish in a tank full of fish. That's not fishing, you know. And now when the interest rates will have to go up, and are going up, look how the economy reacts. It's almost impossible to raise them. We started raising them and they have to go back again. People got used to uh, the future being risk-free. It also might be the case that we, we could maybe, we won't be able to get rid of these very low interest rates because we are addicted to this or the economy is addicted to debt and is also addicted to low interest rates. So the moment you getting to start getting rid of these drugs um, the body can go into delirium it's like when somebody's used to i don't know alcohol or some some other drug and then you suddenly deprive them of this cheap low interested money or excessively um, uh, superfluous fiscal policy then the economy might not be able to function without it and we might be and god forbid i wouldn't like to be right but we might be in a situation where our economy is so spoiled and so used to 3 to 4% government deficit every year, we might not be able to function um, uh, in the natural conditions. The other technical question I want to ask you is, is about interest rates. So it relates to, relates to this. I grew up, and I am just a couple years older than you, so we have a similar... Congratulations. Yeah. You survived. <laughs> My rudimentary understanding of interest rates was that they told a story about risk. I am very risky. Therefore, I have to pay a high rate of interest. Or now that I'm you know, in my mid-40s and, and have savings and established, I'm less risky, so I, I pay a, a lower rate of interest. That story seems to be completely gone now. We just both witnessed Argentine, was it 100-year bonds sold for a little over 7%? Yeah. And were oversold. And now Argentina is, of course, uh, struggling to pay those. How should we think of interest rates and how is that different than maybe what is actually going on? So, uh, yeah, I also read interest rate as a uh, negative proxy for trust. So uh, it's sort of a nice way. How That's, that's why uh, I think economics really should be a subset of uh, sociology because trust is mainly a sociological subject and a one branch of trust which is nicely measurable, is exactly interest rate. So if you trust a country, you give her a low interest or a person low interest rate, untrustworthy country, 
high interest rates. Now, uh, the interesting thing about this long period of zero or even negative interest rates, which we didn't know, technically speaking, was possible, another surprise for us economists. You know, being surprised, that's okay. That happens in every field. But we, 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 we were giving the image that we understand what interest rate really is. And we don't understand what interest rate really is. Otherwise, a bankruptcy of one country wouldn't be a problem because the borrowers were lending to many, many countries, including Greece. And one of the reasons why they were lending to many, many countries was exactly so that they could take a hit from one country going belly up, such as Greece, for example. But we weren't as bankers. That means we fundamentally do not understand what interest rate is. Just because we can measure it and just because we can put it in the futures and forwards and whatnot swaps of and, and swap it in all sorts of arbitrages doesn't mean that we really understand it. It's like you can you can you know work with fire, but you don't necessarily have to understand how fire behaves. Now, interest rate is something that all the ancient lore and all the ancient myths and all the writings of philosophers, starting from the uh, Kammurabi Code through Aristotle, through the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, you will always find, even in 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 Quran you will find these authors warning us against the excessive usage of interest rate. It was a little bit overdone, of course, the, uh, the laws of, against usury and everything, but it was suspicious. Even Aristotle, as a master logician, can't really wrap his head, so don't worry that you can't, nor, nor could Aristotle wrap his head around the interest rate because it was, it, it's a weird animal. So basically, Aristotle, if I you know, sort of crunch it down to a, a, a soundbite, we don't know how it behaves. It looks spooky. Don't use it very much. Use it very, very minimum. It's like if we couldn't really control fire. Let's imagine that fire behaves randomly and sometimes it catches half a meter away from your stove. So if that be the case, if we couldn't really master fire, it wouldn't be in every household. It would be maybe used in special laboratories by experts who have training uh, and there wouldn't be any carpets around and, 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 and things like that. Fortunately, we master fire reasonably well. That's why we can have it in every household. Now, interest rate, on the other hand, is even Aristotle starts using theological arguments, which you're not supposed to do as a logician. You're not supposed to, that's the whole point of logic. You're not supposed to use uh, theological arguments. And, and Aristotle says that, you know, interest rate is a payment for, for time and time doesn't belong us. Time belongs to God. So again, here uh, I paraphrase Aristotle. Uh, so we have no right to charge for time since it isn't ours. So anyway, that's just a brief history of, of interest rate. What's interesting today is actually you can still see the same religious component very nicely in the, in, in the interest rate because, um, uh, for example, here, when ECB, European Central Bank, when they started being the lenders of last resort or creditors of last resort, Interestingly enough, in that two-week period, I was actually invited to give a lecture in Frankfurt at ECB for my, for my friends and colleagues. I named my lecture, congratulations, you have just become the believer of last resort. Because creditor, as you might know, credo means believe. That's what Catholics um, um, recite in church every Sunday. Credo, creed is, is what it is that I actually believe. So they have become creditors, AI, believers uh, of last resort. So the, the story was like this. During the crises, the future of the economy was extremely tricky and nobody trusted each other. In other words, if you'd leave interest rate making 
on the banks, if banks could set only the interbank rates, then market would have had extremely high levels of interest because one bank would not believe another, nobody would lend you during the time of crisis, and everybody would like to have see your savings. So interest rates would go up. This would make the situation for the thriving economy even more difficult. So the economy didn't believe in itself. So what does the central bank have to do? Like a proper priest of faith, it has to step in the game and says, I will now believe in your stead. If you no longer believe in your own future, the economy, I will feed you with my belief. This is the the guarantee that no matter what, euro will remain euro and that we will save the euro, whatever it takes. And this would be the same thing that your governor or chairperson of the Fed would say because he is or she is extending their belief upon the whole, sort of blessing it with their belief. Uh, And that belief is functional because their belief is exactly zero interest rate. Zero interest rate means I absolutely trust you. Zero interest rate means I either absolutely trust you as a person and you as a project and your project. I think it's a great project. I think there is zero risks of (laughs) that project running out. That's the only reason why I give you 0% interest rate or when I'm doing charity or if you'd be my brother and my sister, we'd be friends. Of course, I would lend you for free, but that's in, you know, according to strict economics, that's charity. And this is exactly what the European Central Bank and Fed did. They extended their own belief and they were sort of blessing, how to put it, they were investing, they were bloodletting their own belief into the economy. Similar thing you can see on the level of fiscal policy when the government was spending instead of the economy. The problem is not that they were doing this during the crisis, that's fine. The problem is the US economy has been growing for many, 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 many years. Your fiscal still in the mess and your monetary policy started rising only very, very slowly. In other words, you've had many years of GDP growth and yet your interest rates have been zero. Why? It goes back to the scaffolding thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> you take yes. it away. Yeah, yeah, in a way. Let me ask you a last question. And it, it gets to this idea of growth being a good, like a sunny day, but having an economy that assumes all sunny days is a recipe for disaster. What does prosperity look like without growth at the center of it? What kind of a society would we have? So this is, of course, difficult to say, but for me, as a Westerner, prosperity means that you can take your grandchildren to movies twice a month without actually having to suffer a lack of food. That, to me, is prosperity. And I know that not everybody can have that, but as long as 95% of the population can live um, their lives without having to think twice whether to to take their grandchildren to movies, we are living in a prosperous society. And that's just my way of, everybody can have a slightly different definition, but this one is very difficult to put in technical terms. So I'm using using, um, this sort of uh, allegory. Another example could could be uh, that while we suffer this sort of crisis of capitalism or crisis of European capitalism, if, if you forgive me for sort of a European view, because we are also having questions about European Union, that's, that's what I mean. Um, so maybe, maybe capitalism has fulfilled its goals. I mean, we've always wanted more from capitalism. That's the whole idea of growth, because obviously when something grows, it isn't finished. You know, if we had a common friend whose name was Joe, 
and I asked you, how is Joe? And you said, he's fine. He's growing. A third person would immediately come to the conclusion that Joe must be a small child, you know, because if Joe be an adult, the answer, well, he's fine. He's growing would not be not a, good, a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so clearly uh, we look on our economy with the basic assumption that it's unfinished. Just a mind experiment is what it is. What if it is finished? What if um, European integration actually did what it was supposed to do? Bring peace into very violent and uh, hateful countries of Europe. The French no longer hate the Germans. The Irish no longer hate the British. The British no longer hate the Scottish, etc., etc. We've managed to do that largely thanks to your intervention in the war, but also thanks to European integration. We, we sort of managed to really swallow a camel. We've managed to swallow hatred between nations. So maybe we can say, okay, if that's what we wanted from Europe, we wanted trade and we wanted peace. The whole idea of European integration was the hippie idea, you know, let's make love, not war. We've sort of changed that to a less idealistic, let's trade, not war. And that actually worked really well. Turns out, you don't need love. I mean, it's, of course, nice and everything, but you can actually have peace without French loving Germans or without the Irish loving British and the British Scottish and the Welsh, etc. You don't need love, per se. You need trade, which is sort of an interesting um, take on the hippie ideal. We have trade. The north of Finland is trading with the south of Greece with unprecedented ease. Uh, we wanted peace. We have peace. What else do we want from the European Union? And the same could be said of capitalism. They were asking me the same question in, in Alps of Austria, and they were cattle. Cattle was brazing outside the window, the lecture hall. So um, I took an immediate inspiration, and I thought of my, thought to myself, maybe this also uh, helps me structure my thinking. Anyway, uh, think of a cow, and there's a cowboy. And the cowboy milks the cow and suddenly the cow uh, stops giving milk in the middle of the milking. So the cowboy stands up and starts beating the cow and shouting at it, saying, you're, you're such a stupid cow, you cow. <laughs> uh, you, how can you how dare you stop giving me more milk? I need more milk for my uh, children and you, I need more milk to give to my workers. I need more milk to build muscle and I don't know what bone structures, etc., etc. Give me more milk. Now, in this story, the cow opens her mouth and says, because it's a fairy tale, so here cows may speak. So cow opens her mouth and looks at the cowboy and says, but I've already given you all my milk. I've actually given you, I don't know what, three gallons today. One of them you let rot in the, on the sun. The other you drank yourself. And the third one you couldn't even care to measure properly. Uh, don't blame me for not giving you enough milk. I have given you, I have given you enough milk and, and, and you've already, I mean, there is no more milk that I can give. And this is a, a parable that I think is quite fit to our system as well. We really do have enough of resources to take care of the poor. It's not the problem of the economy. It's the problem of the distribution that we chose to do the way we do it. And there are big differences between the European solution or the North European solution and American solution. Both of them, we both use capitalism, but we simply share the milk from the capitalist cow a little differently than in the United States of America or in Japan. That's fine, but we can't really be blaming the cow. So anyway, so the idea is the same. What if the problem is not that the cow is not giving us enough of milk and we're trying to find ways how to milk the cow harder and, and, and more efficiently instead of thinking, okay, well, this is all the milk we have. We can now focus on how to actually work with the milk that we have.
I said earlier, I'm, I'm slightly older than you, just a couple years. But I do remember very distinctly the late 80s and the change from the Soviet-dominated sphere and uh, you know this opening up to the West of Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia and Hungary and, and the whole thing. I know a lot of people younger than me don't know Vaclav Havel at all and have no recollection and, and memory of him, despite his importance, not just in your country, but you know, in, in this whole transition we went through. And I, I wanted to, in closing, just give you an opportunity to tell people a little bit about who he was. And we're mostly an American audience. Why should he matter? Why is he a historical figure that people here in the United States should at least be aware of? Well, thank you very much for mentioning, uh, I think, the greatest hero in the anti-communist fight um, that we had in the bloc. Also, please realize that in, in Russia, which is actually ironic, nobody really, uh, very few people, I don't even know if somebody spotted this, there was no anti-communist revolution in Moscow. We had them here in Prague, to which, of course, I welcome all your listeners. If anybody stops to drop by, uh, stops by, drop me a note. I'd like to take you out for a beer if you ever plan to visit. But um, it happened in the satellites that we, uh, we had a revolution against communism, but it didn't happen in Russia. I mean, it's a, it's a great miracle. Why didn't Russia continue the way that China did? Why didn't Russia remain communist? I mean, they could have. Nobody was forcing them. Somehow communism just, you know, fell down in Russia without a single, single revolution. I, I don't think people in Russia wanted it to end. We did. But according to the number of protests, which were zero, in Russia, this hatred towards communism, which we had and we still have, and maybe that's our biggest legacy to the world. Um, communism in all of its forms is dead. It never worked in no single country and almost every single country that it touched. It ended up in totalitarianism. And also, uh, Václav Havel was, um, you know, his legacy is he never actually spoke so badly about the communists. If I listen to today's politics, it's anti-Trump or anti-Hillary Clinton. And it's the same here in Europe and it's the same in, in Czech Republic. And uh, now that I was, you know, listening and reading to some of his stuff, he was facing far worse enemies. I mean, communists are much worse than, believe it or not, than some of the um, politicians that are pretending to lead us um, in, in our respective constituencies. And he had enemies that were actually literally jailing him, you know, and, 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 and putting him through torture and, and not allowing him to travel and, and really, really, really going to the points of hatred that is unimaginable in today's politics. And yet he didn't speak badly about them. His critique of communism was sort of based on, well, we have a better system and we completely dislike communism, but he wasn't, he wasn't as critical about communists as you hear from some politicians today just being real badasses, one would want to say, real critiques towards their democratic um, partner that happened to share a different opinion. So um, uh, that's what I miss about him. He was able to come up with actually a positive vision, not anti this or anti that, but I have an idea and you guys follow this and I believe the quality of the idea to be so high that I really don't need to insult anybody while I, uh, while I promote it. So um, he was also a great world thinker. He, was, he, he didn't think in terms of a nation. 
he was thinking in terms of a humanity. I mean, what justice is there that a child who is born in Czech Republic gets full education and medical care and a child that is born a couple of hundred you know, kilometers east in, in less developed countries institutionally uh, gets none of this? I mean, there, there is no choice in which country I or you were born. And yet we take automatic privilege just from that. Uh, why can't we start thinking in humanity as a... Uh, as a as a entity and stop being actually nationalistic because GDP is actually a remnant of, of sort of nationalism because we still measure national GDP vis-a-vis some other national GDP. So uh, as our planet is transitioning from a civilization type one, this is of course the great theory of um, uh, you know the Kardashev scale and and um, uh, all the great theoretical physicists uh, believe that this planet um, and they have calculations that will it will transition from a planet uh, civilization type zero which is characterized by local skirmishes of one against the other depending on you know what not colors of their skin or ties or uh, <laughs> football teams to a civilization type one which will have a planetary way of organizing ourselves we can organize ourselves as human species at the level of nation and somewhere at the level of nations such as united nations you no longer look at each other as texas versus minnesota but um, you primarily look at yourself as as as, as americans uh, and we in Europe are trying to look at ourselves not as Czechs, but as Europeans, as a person who holds a value uh, similarity to another, let's say you, not a value of a piece of ground where I happen to be uh, born. But let me maybe end with this. Uh, when Donald Trump was running for um, American presidency, his very interesting slogan was, let's make America great again, uh, in which there is a Freudian slip of tongue, which I Please correct me, but I uh, also think very few people realized when I heard this, I was very happy when I heard Trump, although not my not my pick. But when he said, let's make America great again, I thought, oh, finally, we have somebody who is a little bit type civilization type one thinking planetarily. He is thinking about the prosperity of America. And last time I checked, no country called America. America is the name of a continent, you know, I hate to say. So I was thinking, oh, my God, this guy wants me to, to be to, for Canada to be great again. The, and the Western Mexico Hemisphere, yeah. Again, and Venezuela <laughs> and Cuba. <laughs> and, and that's great. Finally, somebody who is not stuck his head in his political constituency <laughs> and is actually thinking on behalf of the whole continent, because that's exactly the sort of thinking that we need. Because And why, the reason why I say that this is a Freudian Slip of tongue, you know, Freudian slip of tongue basically means that you say the truth without meaning to. Donald Trump was right. Although, of course, I think what he meant to say was, let's make United States of America great again. That's, I think, what he meant to say. But he was right. The only way how to make United States of America great again is to make America as a continent great again. Because you guys, you have such high conscience you will not rest if there will be it will be skirmishes on your borders with mexico you will not have rest if there will be skirmishes in in north korea you will not rest if there will be skirmishes in jerusalem you will not rest if there will be skirmishes in europe so to end um i hope that one day and i think this was also one of the visions of vaslav havel i hope that one day you and i or maybe our children will be able to vote for a politician who's running for our voices with a slogan let's make the world great for the first time. Right. Thank you. <laughs> so let's hope for that. I really would love to come to 
to the Czech Republic. And if I do, it will be primarily to meet you. I, I have loved your work. And this conversation has thank been an, an absolute delight. And I do hope if you... My it, honor. Well, thank you. If you find yourself in Minnesota at some point, I hope you will remember to let me know because I, I will take you out and, and let you uh, see Minnesota as we do. <laughs> Standing invitation. I pay for your beers in Prague. You pay for my beers in Minnesota. That would be delightful. Let's do that. Sounds good. Okay. I would love to continue the conversation. You take care and we'll speak again soon. Thank you very much for a very interesting hour. <laughs> Goodbye. That was Tomas Sedlacek, the author of The Economics of Good and Evil. If you like Strong Towns, you've got to read this book. It has meant so much to me, and it's helped me get out of the United States-centric way of thinking about economics and uh, into uh, something very transformative to my thinking. So many thanks to Tomas Sedlacek, and many thanks to all of you for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care, everybody. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.